Greetings, I'm Josh Tyson, co-author of Age of Invisible Machines, the first best-selling book about conversational AI. Age of Invisible Machines explores the learnings of conversational AI veteran and OneReach.ai CEO Rob Wilson. Each week, Rob and I bring in a guest to continue the conversation we started in the pages of our book. This week on the Invisible Machines podcast, we're talking about the limitations and dangers associated with large language models, the dubious role anthropomorphization plays in our ability to see technology's true nature, and the possibility of an LLM that's publicly moderated and actively maintained for inclusivity and equity. Our guest is Emily M. Bender, a linguistics professor at University of Washington and co-author of the oft-cited and oft-debated Stochastic Parrots paper from 2021. Having worked in computational linguistics for more than 20 years, Emily's deep understanding of the mechanics of large language models has led her to question many of the emerging use cases we see out in the world. As a staunch critic of LLMs and co-host of the Mystery AI Hype Theater 3000 podcast, Emily challenges us to spend less time worrying about the future so we can focus on solving urgent problems in the present. Enjoy this compelling conversation with Emily M. Bender. Invisible Machines is produced in partnership with OneReach.ai. Their Generative Studio X platform is the only orchestration platform that's been named a leader by every major analyst group. Enterprises and other organizations are already using GSX to create technology ecosystems where they can grow their own digital teammates called intelligent digital workers. These IDWs can be set to work with hundreds of customizable skills utilizing GSX's no-code building tools. Head to OneReach.ai to test drive an IDW and experience the next phase of generative AI. Emily, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We are we are really excited for this yeah. conversation. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I think this is going to be fun. And Rob, a pleasure as always seeing you. Oh, uh, yeah. Good to see yeah, you, yeah. Josh. So, so uh, Emily, actually just this morning, I was listening to you kind of go through OpenAI's latest research paper, I think it's called GPTs are GPTs yeah. on the Mystery AI Hype Theater 3000 podcast. Uh, e excellent name for a podcast, by the way. <laughs> I was Thank so you. happy when, when new episodes of that show came on on Netflix. But anyway, uh, I found that episode both, you know, it was very funny, but it was also a bit frightening. And uh, I thought maybe to start us off, you could talk a little bit, bit about where you think we are in the LLM hype cycle. I know that uh, you know in, in stochastic parrots, uh, the, the well-known paper that you co-authored. You know, you, you made some critical distinctions about the limitations of LLMs. Uh, you know, the things that they're not capable of, and how they really only kind of represent sort of a sliver of human thinking. Uh, do you get the sense that people are starting to see those limitations, or are things like you know the hype surrounding GPTs kind of deepening the confusion? I I would say that so. Stochastic Parrots was written in late 2020 and published in early 2021. Um, and one of the kinds of issues we identified with ever larger language models was that people might mistake the synthetic text for something that actually reflects reasoning or thinking or, or knowledge. And when we wrote that section, and that's the section that actually defines the term stochastic parrots, um, we thought we were going out on a limb. We thought nobody's actually going to be this excited about ungrounded synthetic text. Like, this is... But, you know, maybe. So we'll put this out there. And so it's been sort of a surprise to see just how much people have fallen for this and across so many different sectors of society. So because we can now produce these plausible looking textual outputs in English and a few other languages on just about any topic, people think that therefore we are nearly there on robo lawyers, robo therapists, robo teachers, all this stuff, which is like the, the form of what a therapist said is not therapy. And the form of a legal contract is not the legal contract that you want, right? But if you take it and use it, then it becomes the legal contract that you have, right? Um, so are people starting to see, um, you know, just yesterday as we're recording this, uh, there was this big story that broke about um, there was some kind of a glitch in uh, OpenAI's model, uh, text model, ChatGPT or GPT-4 or whatever, so that it was outputting what looked like gibberish. Um, uh -huh. And... And their sort of follow-up to that basically said, yeah, well, you know, here's how it works and and something was off in some of the weights and so therefore, and it's like, yeah, exactly. And so I think that may have 
helped a bunch of people, but yeah, I'm, I keep hoping we're going to turn the corner yeah. on this hype bubble and it keeps not having happened. Yeah. It's sort of like props, props in a movie set. It looks like a real family. It looks like a real house. Um, <laughs> yeah. But if you just broaden the lens, if you just, you know, take a, a wide shot from 20 feet back, you'll see that it's not, it's a lot, it's a lot like artificial everything. And there's no substance there. It's not a real family. It's just, it just looks like one. Think of, um, you know, the McLuhanism kind of fooling our senses into believing there's something anthropomorphic going on there. Um, yeah. And that yeah. this is a human, but it's really just behaving and mimicking a human in a really, almost like an alien might, where it doesn't understand what it's trying to communicate. It's just, it's just mimicking yeah. our like, our 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 sounds back to us in the same order that it heard them. <laughs> right, right. Although even less than your hypothetical alien, because you said it doesn't understand what it's trying to communicate. There's no trying there at all. Right, right. right? It's it's yeah, right, right, right. It's 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 not even trying. It's just it's just generating. It's just yeah, it's just word. executing his program, which is right. generate the next word based on the yeah. learned uh, training data. So we've, I, I think we've. I would say in some ways we've like participated in this hype and then in some in some ways, you know, we've sort of tried to dampen it. And the way in which we've participated is through a pretty particular lens around how we interact. The interface in which we interact with our computers and software is changing. So in the same way we would say Windows affected how we use software and machines dramatically, we're seeing this as a dramatic shift from a user interface standpoint and mm -hmm. that being able to utilize our software more effectively, our old software, our new software, mm -hmm. that, that, will, that will have profound effects, but it's not that we've, you know, sort of taken the stance that we've reproduced the human brain inside of a computer. It's the interface to the same logical patterns that we have in software, but with a an easier way to navigate to those features, uh, an easier way to understand how to use the software of today, um, and that it's it's very superficial as most UIs are. Graphical UIs are, you know, if you take the the sort of back end and logic away, they don't do anything without the without the protocols for email. It's it's an interface that doesn't send anything to anyone. And right. so so we're super excited from a user experience standpoint because we believe that that traditional software design really leaves a lot of people behind. It's it's very difficult. It doesn't scale very well. It's hard to use. You're pogo sticking between apps. Um, we need to care about things like, should I send an email or text message? And these protocols shouldn't necessarily be things we need to think about it should just be send this person a message um and so we see a lot of opportunity to simplify uh the software but not necessarily this other side of it which is the reasoning and decision making and computers making choices for us um although in some ways you know computer software has been making choices for us for a long time and that's that's fine but it's not really the software making the choices it's a person and even in an LLM it still originated as text from a person so those choices were still programmed just yeah. the person doing it didn't realize they were programming they were just writing stuff on the internet or in reddit right they they didn't realize they were actually programming necessarily a system but at the same time it was a, it was a set of human decisions that it's parroting, it's not making those decisions. I, I don't know how much you agree with anything I just said. <laughs> yeah, so so I think in terms of who, who are the agents who've made decisions to create these LLMs, I think it's really important to look at the people who chose the data sets to do the training on. I think they have more agency. They're, they're more the programmers than the right. people who- Good point, who wrote it. Going about their own business, you know, right. posting on the internet, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So we're talking about uh, how to make user interfaces more intuitive. And I, what I hear in what you were saying was a desire to basically be able to walk up to the machine and make a guess 
as a speaker of the language that it is, or one of the languages that it's prepared for, and have your guests be right, and have it come back and do the thing that you want. Um, rather than having to learn the visual metaphors, rather than having to poke through menus, or rather than having to go learn a bunch of commands on the command line. Yeah, or poke um, And this, I think, is, is, as I understand it, the promise of a voice user interface for um, accessing software. Is that about what you were going for? It is, and, and I think a lot of people misunderstand me and think it's like, one or the other, but it. I think our view is a hybrid. It's you're still going to have those components, but they'll be nested within the context of language. So it's you still need those charts and graphs, those high bandwidth visuals, you know, for oh, the for explore sure. components. But we sort of lose the, as you said, the geo, the geographic component of go to this menu, go to the fourth option, go over here, go over there. So that idea of where do I go? Which app do I go to? How do I get to that thing, that button, that like that sort of stuff is 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 the it's it's like no it's like a ta the difference between a taxi driver you know without a GPS knowing the city on the back of their hand and and somebody going to a brand new city not knowing it at all and trying to be a taxi driver like those people that have that geospatial knowledge of an application have a edge over other people on the basis that they just know the software. And this really dates back to my original days with Avid, where we were, you know, starting to make movies from analog to digital. And we were seeing all these new young folks coming into the industry that knew the software, but didn't know the craft of, of making movies. And it was like this, this choice you were having to make of do you hire someone who knows the software and can mat and has mastery over what menu to go to to do X or, or Y? Or do you want someone who's been, you know, editing movies for 20, 30 years and knows what facial expression to cut to and what take, you know, is going to work best for communicating? So it's, it kind of really so dates back to that moment, right? And saying, okay, um, yeah. it's powerful. But what if that person that is the, the, you know, the craftsman that's been doing it for 30 years doesn't have to learn the streets of a the city. They don't have to study the software. Yeah. So I want to, I want to actually speak um, to the benefits of friction. Um, and I've come across this in a couple of ways. Um, and I will try to retrieve the name of the person um, who's paper I got this concept from. But one thing is I, I taught a class um, a couple years ago now um, called Meaning Making with Artificial Interlocutors, sort of looking into the question of what happens when we bring our linguistic selves into a conversation where the other conversationalist actually can't do meaning making the way we usually do it in conversation, and what are the pitfalls? And one of the things that I like to do in my research and teaching is to you know avoid reinventing the wheel. So I thought, okay, let's go look at the literature as one of the weeks, basically, found a bunch of references in voice user interface design, saying, surely these people have thought about the pitfalls here of making something seem too human, of sort of not making clear what the actual affordances of the system are by putting this, like, we're going to make it as natural as possible. So we go into that literature, and there was not a peep about it being possibly problematic to be too natural in the mm. interaction. That's weird. So that sort of yeah. surprised me. Um, sort of one one vignette there. And then the other, um, and this is worked together with Shirag Shah on replacing search engines with chatbots, okay. which um, I think is a terrible idea along multiple dimensions. So, you know, first of all, as we were saying at the beginning, chatbots are programmed to just make stuff up. And typically when you are searching for something on the internet, fiction is not what you're looking for. Or if you're looking for fiction, you want to know, like, who's the author of that fiction? Right, um, right. So, but even if counterfactually it were possible to have a chatbot that would give the correct answer, and I say counterfactually both because the technology is not there, but also because for many things that we have questions about, the correct answer isn't a thing, right? How many miles of coastline does the U.S. have? Well, right. how are you measuring coastline, right? There's some decisions you have to make before you can answer that question. How many people live in the U.S.? Well, what does live mean, right? What, what does it mean to reside somewhere? Are we counting people here only temporarily, et cetera, et cetera? Um, people who are have their addresses here, but actually spend most of their time in Canada and so on. So any one of these things are not, is not really an answer. There are answers that are found in certain ways. And 
if you've got a good information ecosystem, you can drill down and find the sources of those answers. But if we're doing search and we end up with a technology that basically just gives us back the answer to any question we ask, we are cut off from our ability to do that sense making, to sort of build our own mental model of what's going on on the other side of that interface, be it search or VUI to a computer. And so I think we want a certain amount of friction because it's helpful to become more informed users of the technology. We don't want it to be inaccessible, right? You're right that there's a real problem there, that like poking through the menus is a bummer and a drag. Um, I'm an old enough computer person that I actually prefer keyboard shortcuts and command line stuff because uh -huh. I can learn those better than I can like hunt through menus for things. I hate using the mouse. Um, for other people, it's the other way, but all those things have a certain degree of inaccessibility to them. And being able to just walk up and speak for many people increases accessibility. Um, having said that, I want to um, tell you about an amazing session I was just at at the um, AAAS meeting, American Association for the Advancement of Science, just took place in Denver. And there was a session on voice technology for people with various disabilities and how people are being left out of the conversation. So the name of the session was... Um, I'm sorry, I don't understand how voice AI poses barriers and some solutions. Um, and the speakers um, were Hannah Rowe, who was talking about access to voice AI by people with degenerative disease, so dysarthria, when you've got something that's affecting muscle control and it makes it hard for your voice to you know, be interpreted, both by people but especially by voice user interfaces. Um, and then Abraham uh, Glasser talked about voice AI, deaf speech, and the search for signed language AI interfaces. So thinking about deaf and hard of hearing people who would also like to be able to use this technology, either by voicing, as some do, but with a deaf accent is the word for it, um, or through actually signed language interfaces instead of spoken language interfaces. Um, and then finally, Xiaomei Wu talked about, um, her title was Blocked by the System, How Current Voice AI Silences People Who Stutter. And she has started with this very evocative example that came from the New York Times of a person with a, a stutter, which is roughly, um, let's see, let's say I think 1% of the population has a stutter. Okay. And so this person was trying to access it over the phone. And one part, as, as you and your listeners I'm sure know, of a voice uh, interaction system is endpoint detection. Did the person stop speaking? Yes. Well, one really common kind of stuttering is to have a long pause. And so it kept cutting him off and saying, I'm sorry, I couldn't understand, or I'm sorry, please repeat, or I'm sorry, he was just trying to say it, you know, for the first time. So um, all of this popping up a level to say that, yes, a voice UI can be an increase in accessibility for some people. Yeah. Um, but even for those people, I think it's important to have some friction so that they don't feel like they're talking to a computer that can understand anything they say. It should be clear to them sort of what's on the other side of that what kinds of voice commands work well, what kinds of things, what kinds of things could even have a voice command associated yeah. with them. Yeah, and I think voice commands are maybe over-indexed on, because I think it's it's natural language and text that's gonna be more <laughs> more useful than voice. Although I, I think voice has its value, it's hands-free and things like that. Um, I'm not, you know, for whatever reason, I, I kind of lean more towards the, the textual input of, of navigating versus, I mean, it's, I think it, it, this is, you know, this is sort of what I got from, a, from sort of a lot of the stuff that I researched that you talked about. And it's that this is, this is an evolution, not a revolution. A search engine was already a conversational uh, UI because you, you typed words in. Um, so really it was already on now. that trajectory, right? Um, yeah. And then it it returned responses, and 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 there was like an art, and is an art to to querying, right? That there's people better at it than others, and um, so so all this stuff sort of exists. We're just moving, you know, more forward, and yeah, the idea that a search engine would be a bunch of drop downs and menus is untenable. And so now we just see, oh, an improvement potentially on finding the thing I want to do, the the menu item, the task uh, I want to accomplish, um, and possibly a, you know more guidance on how to accomplish that is evolutionary in my mind. Now, writing code is a whole other story 
and systems, you know, writing code, you know, that's, that's a, I think a different, different perspective in UI. That's a, you know, an idea from a, uh, a developer's UI perspective, but, but basically, you know, I can, you know, I can see that as we're using it, you know, mainly for, for the folks that come to us, it's, it, a lot of it comes down to just helping people find stuff they otherwise couldn't find answers to questions, features, things like that. The, the idea that it's going to make decisions for them. I know there's a lot of folks talking about that. That's not something we're seeing surfacing um, as a I, as a practical thing that doesn't have a huge danger associated with it. Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing it surfacing and people trying to do it. So right, there's right. A, um, and also, you know, decisions is an interesting sort of framing for things, right? So if you think about um, Otter AI now is frequently advertising the system that summarizes meetings for you. Yes. Right? Yeah. Well. A summary is a bunch of decisions. True. Right? What's what's important enough yeah, to surface? What's, right. What's yeah. critical? What matters? Yeah. And you know, it's not on the machine side actually decision making. It's processing, and it's several steps of processing. And so this, you know, again, we're back to to voice. So Auto AI is supposed to be summarizing spoken meetings. Um, so if you've got somebody whose accent or just voice for whatever reason isn't picked up as well, then their points aren't going to end up in the summary. Right, um, right. Can't possibly end up in the summary. Um, but even if, you know, among the people whose voices are being picked up, um, there is some statistical noise in what ends up in the summary. There's some algorithm that is choosing things to put into the summary. And so the decisions are the decisions to use that algorithm, decisions to use it in ways where people don't have the time or the incentive to go back and check and see what was missing. Um, or, you know, is, is everybody who was in the meeting um, funded, like, you know, given paid time? to look over the summary and make sure that their main points are there. Um, yeah. I doubt it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so so the, the decisions are, are those kinds of decisions. Yeah, that's an interesting point because that pattern is the pattern we advocate for, which is the, here's a, here's a summary to the host, um, you know, moderated, do you approve it? Hey, we've we've kind of done some of the work for you, but you have to complete this. Um, but your point is that like laziness factor of I'm not going to read it over. I'm just going to hit approve. Um, how do you deal with that? Wow. Is it better to have no summary than a bad summary? <laughs> it, it depends uh, on what's being summarized and how the summaries right. are being used, I think. I was just going to say one of the things we keep zeroing back to and, and maybe over indexing on at times is instead of looking at LLMs or how people are looking to implement this new technology and how our customers are um, through the lens of like this brand new thing that doesn't compare to anything except the AI of yesterday, which, you know, who, who, who knows what that is exactly, um, is to just go, how much better is it than the traditional UI we were using? And if it's better, then it's better. It doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't need to not have flaws. It just needs to be better. <laughs> and and that's an improvement. And so if if somebody's able to to use uh, software in a way that uh, makes it easier and and makes their job more effective, then it's better. It's not perfect, but we're moving in the right direction. And if it's worse, it's worse. And you can't say globally in all cases it's going to be better or worse. You can just look case by case. But what we do notice is that um, that a lot of companies are sort of embedding conversation into their traditional UIs. Like it's what we call like bolt-on AI, right? We're seeing it pop into our existing apps. So conversation AI LLMs are coming to people whether they want to go to it or not. Um, and one of the questions I had for you was, do you think that that is like the best form factor to like try to bolt it into our old apps or, or is there a new sort of paradigm shift in, in, in how the interface needs to be where pieces of graphical UIs can be part of the conversation, but 
like trying to bolt these into our existing apps. What's your thoughts there? Yeah. So first, I want to take issue with the idea that if it makes a person's job easier, then it's better. And if it doesn't, then it's worse because there's more people we need to keep in the frame. Like if we think if we go back to this, you know, automatic summarization of, of meetings example, maybe there's somebody who had the job of summarizing a meeting and so their job gets easier. Um, but does it also make life better for the people whose words aren't getting captured? Right. Sort of keeping the um I agree with that. Yeah. If, other if folks a summary means I don't attend the meeting now because I just rely on the summary and my and my presence would have been far better then now I'm now I'm not going to meetings because I'm depending on a summary, then everybody does that and no one's going to meetings. <laughs> right. Or even if a few people are the slackers who don't go to meetings, um, but then they systematically get missed the points made by the people whose voices weren't picked up because yeah. they speak with a different accent or whatever. Um, but maybe the people who are the slackers are influential decision makers and so they are overlooking folks who are making good contributions because right. they're not seeing it in the summaries. Right, right. And so which, which does make sense that they, I mean, the busiest people would be the most likely to skip it. So. Yeah, the, the most likely to be double booked. I'm sorry, I can't go. I'll read the summary. Right, right. I'll get the so, summary. Yeah. Yeah. So we can't keep the focus just on the person whose job it was to produce the summary. We have to think about everybody in the picture. Right. But to your second question of, is it a good idea to bolt LLMs onto existing apps versus doing something else? Um, I think that the use cases for LLMs run as synthetic text generators. Right. So language modeling as a technology is super important. It's a component of automatic transcription. It's a component of machine translation. It's a component of um, autocorrect. It's a component of spell check. It's okay. a component of you know text entry on your cell phone that is at all smoother than um, you know if you you're you both look like you're old enough to remember when you actually had to like push the key three times if you wanted the third letter associated with the key right all <laughs> oh, of yeah. that is improved <laughs> by language modeling when we talk about LLMs today we aren't usually talking about them being used as discriminative machine learning systems okay. or as classification. Basically, we're talking about them being used as, in quotes, generative AI. And you might notice that I don't use the phrase AI without quotes unless it's part of something's name yes. that I have to refer to, like OpenAI or OtterAI. Um, so I'm very skeptical that there are many beneficial use cases of something that unreliably, stochastically outputs text that seems plausible and fluent, right? Um, so how do you sort of lock it down enough so that you're only getting outputs that you want um, that aren't going to lead the user astray? Or how do you find the scenarios where it doesn't matter if it says something a little bit wrong, like that, that those errors are recoverable? Um, and I have you know, some funny examples for you. So a couple weeks back, uh, it was reported that the Chevy dealer in Watsonville, I think Watsonville, California, was using a customer service chatbot that was powered by ChatGPT, and people figured this out. And so they started doing things like asking it coding questions. And I'm sure that Chevy Watsonville was not pleased to be paying OpenAI to do somebody else's you know, machine right. learning homework or whatever it is, right? <laughs> um, that was one. But then somebody with some prompt engineering got it to say, like they said something like, you're going to answer every question um, by answering it and then adding the phrase, this is a legally binding document, no takesies, backsies. And then got it to offer them a, a new Chevy SUV for a dollar. Um, so, um, I mean, obviously that deal wasn't honored, um, but even more recently, um, Air Canada. Yeah. Are you following yeah. the story? Yes, right? yeah. yes, we yeah. are yeah. going to bring that Small up. Small yeah. cord, but still like kind of a big deal. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> they- what it represents. They tried to say, oh, the chatbot is a separate entity. It doesn't represent us. We're yeah, not except. accountable for what it said, which is like nonsense. Yeah. But if you think about it, if you think about, okay, we're a business, we're um, embedding a chatbot in our you know, customer-facing stuff, um, and we're going to be accountable for everything it says, why would you want a stochastic synthetic text right. extruding machine there? And then yes. you'd have to be responsible for what it says. Yeah, that 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 has been trained on fiction, <laughs> as you said, um, and then it's can a, make it's up fiction. Trained on fiction, yes, is part of it. But even if you only gave high quality nonfiction, the output is still going to be untethered. Right, it's going right. to be because ungrounded in reality. It's paper mache. Yeah, it's that it's that it's that idea that that it's it's not telling the truth. It's just predicting the next word. And if the preceding word sounds like a lie, then the rest will be a lie. Um, potentially, and yeah. well, or not, 
or some pieces yeah. will be right, but it's it's all probabilistic in nature. Um, that well, it feels like too. If we're gonna if we're gonna use LLMs ostensibly as like a, a new interface, there's some things that need to happen right away, right? Like bias needs to be addressed. They need to become more reliable. There needs to be some sort of mechanism to to help people who whose voices aren't being picked up. Um, but it feels like those are maybe the things where we are hearing and seeing the smaller amounts of uh, work or excitement around. Uh, uh, is that is that just another component of people being caught up in like kind of the the novelty of of what these models are able to do, or is there like a deeper flaw? There's a, there's a deeper thing going on there. Um, on the one hand, um, there's a fundament, fundamental mismatch between technology and task. If you want a probabilistic text generating machine to say things that say a company would be happy standing behind, you've picked the wrong kind of technology. It's not built for that. And it never will be. Like that that's just not what it's for um, or what it what it can be designed to be. It can't be. There's no refinements to something that is probabilistically picking the next token that will ground it in here's the thing that we want to express in this moment. How do we express it in a way that is interpretable by this user? It's just it's just the wrong path. It's part of it. On the bias side of things, um, there's a huge amount of energy looking into, first of all, documenting the bias in language models. And that work goes back to about 2016 um, as people were using um, the sort of first generation, I would say, of large-ish. I mean, they look small now, um, neural language models as a component in all kinds of other language technology. Um, and just to sort of go on the techie side of this for a little bit, um, one of the things that's going on inside these language models is that words are represented not in terms of the letters that make them up, but in terms of what other words they co-occur with, which is extremely powerful because it means that dog and cat actually look similar because they're going to occur in similar contexts in the training data, whereas, you know, strings of letters, there's no letters in common, right? There's, there's no easy way to generalize across those two if you look at them as strings of letters. If you look at them as bundles of, of word co-occurrence frequencies, they look really, really similar. And so people started using this as a component of every single kind of language technology there was, and there was just huge wins across the board, across all different tasks. And then people started looking at, okay, but um, what kind of biases are in there? And so there's early work by Bolik Bassi et al., by uh, Kaliskan et al., sort of saying, hey, look, all of these societal biases, all of our systems of oppression, they're reflected in the things we say. And so therefore, they're reflected in this training data. Um, and you get things like, this is, I think, Kaliskan's observation, um, if you're translating from Turkish to English, Turkish doesn't distinguish between he and she. There's just one pronoun that means he or she or it. Um, there's just one gender neutral pronoun. So if you use that pronoun, and then the rest of the sentence is, is a doctor, and translate into English, guess what? Outcomes, he is a doctor. And if you use is a nurse, outcomes, she is a nurse. Right? And this is nothing to do with the Turkish input and everything right. to do with the English language model that has to make a choice between he and she and is using its biases about what's going to co-occur with doctor and nurse. Uh -huh. um, so all that stuff, there's been enormous amounts of research into it. However, we aren't getting close to fixing the problem because, first of all, the big companies are just indiscriminately grabbing larger and larger data sets with like no eye to documenting what's in them or anything. And that's part of what we were on about in the Stochastic Parrots paper. But also, ultimately, there's no such thing as an unbiased data set or an unbiased language model. Right. It's just too deeply interwoven into human society. So we have to recognize it. And we want to do things like, you know, avoid including overt hate sites in our training data. Like you can, you can do better, but right. you can't be perfect at this. Um, and yeah. so we have to then design for how are we using it. So one of the use cases for synthetic text is, well, this is something that people can just use as a conversation partner to practice speaking in a language that they're studying. Right. We don't really care about the, no one's expecting it to tell us things that are, you know, facts in the output there. So isn't it okay that it's synthetic? Well, okay, yes, but, you know, what kinds of patterns of like views of the world do you want the language learners to be being exposed to as they're doing these conversations and these sort of subtle biases can be really insidious in that kind of a context. Yeah, I think there's also something else that um, that gets overlooked, which is even if it's not, just having these sort of brute force algorithms, these broad algorithms where we're all getting the same answers to the same questions 
that even if that question is a good question, it can cause problems because we don't have the variety um, that that evolution like requires the the mutations and the trying different things. So in other words, if 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 our inkjet printer just decides to buy the cheapest best ink um, in that moment, and all of a sudden every computer printer buys the same ink on the same day at the same time, we we have huge disruption, right? And it's not that it's not good ink and it's not that it wasn't the right choice. It's that now we've deferred our decision-making to something that's th that's centralized and it's making this like broad choice for everyone, which then becomes a problem, right? It's, there's, there's beauty, I guess, and, and function in the fact that we're flawed and not everything we decide is the right thing. <laughs> you know, I, don't I, know I, I think that. That, that what you're getting at is basically the problems with scale, right? That, right, that a lot yes. of things work better if we um, sort of live and relate to local communities that don't have to be geographically local, but, you know, for things like, you know, anything that you're buying that's going to be shipped, like local is better if you can, right? Um, but we have local networks that then form parts of larger structures. And something that tries to be a part of every single one of those local things is overly centralizing and overly scaling um, and can lead to problems, yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to get back to something you said. Uh, LLMs as a classifier, we sort of <laughs> jumped past that. Um, is it a good classifier in your mind or when is it useful yeah. as yes. a classification tool versus a text generation tool? Um, cause it, this is an area that I think we spend most of our time in with LLMs is LLMs as a classification tool, less as a text generation tool. So tell me how you're using them as classification. What are you, what um, are you classifying? So we might observe conversations that have taken place and do things like analysis of sentiment, or um, we may decide if a if a uh, conversation has been resolved to the satisfaction of the end user or not as a form of analytics not as a not as a as a way to manage the conversation itself so think of a conversation either between two humans or a very strict conversation between an interface machine and a person that's not generative but then observing the responses that the machine naturally couldn't interpret because it hadn't been programmed to understand frustration, right? So it's, I think uh, you mentioned it earlier, it's it's constantly cutting somebody off, right? Now imagine an agent that is observing that that's happening, right? It's not doing the job of generating the text, but it, but it can be aware potentially that somebody's getting frustrated and then trigger some other, again, non- AI or whatever you want to call it, I'll use your quotes too, um, to happen. So it's as a classification of, um, you know, of is there an issue with this conversation? Is there an issue with this user? Is this about X? Is this about Y? Is this a billing question? Is this a, you know, these kinds of things where, where it doesn't even necessarily affect the interaction itself, but it helps the humans behind the scenes make sure that the things they've designed are doing what they're supposed to. Yeah, so so from my computational linguistics point of view, what you're describing is text classification. So yes. the input text is a dialogue, and the output is some set of labels. It might just be user satisfied, user not satisfied. It might be we're interested in what kinds of issues we're, our users have been coming in with, and we just want to classify those into buckets, and we'll predetermine the buckets. Um, I'm not convinced that LLMs are the best uh, tool for that task either. Like there's plenty of other kinds of machine learning you can apply to text rather than LLMs. Yeah, you can you can do, because this is also, um, so uh, you know, if you think about supervised machine learning, right? so you, you label a bunch of things, someone goes through, like you have to have some idea of what makes for, you have to have some labeled data, even if you're doing unsupervised learning, to be able to test it to see how well it worked. You have to come up with some definition of what do we mean by satisfied, unsatisfied? How do we operationalize that definition so that people can go through and annotate it? Right. So we have some gold standard data to test the system against. Um, if you can only make a tiny amount of that data, I can imagine you might try using an LLM as a classifier, um, where you basically put in the prompt, and then the, the prompt is like, classify the following conversation as user yeah. satisfied or not satisfied, and then see how it did. Um, my yeah, guess it's is- the if, few shot learning, not the, yeah, if you have enough yeah. data, absolutely, that's not the best way. It's the more like, you don't, right? So 
So, okay. So, but then why don't you have enough data? Oh, right? it, it, you, you just might be a small company that doesn't, you know, have enough samples, conversational okay. samples to, to classify, right? So you're not saying that you don't have enough money to pay the annotators. It's that you've, you've just started and you don't have very many to classify. Right. Right. Um, uh, so, it could be both, right? It could be both. Yeah. Um, but what I was going to say is like, okay, we can't afford creating a big training set. Um, I'd be like, okay, well, how much is it costing you to use the LLM, right? At what point does OpenAI raise the cost and so on? Like it's, it's right. not, the LLM's not free either. True, true. Um, so, yeah. So I think that, you know, in that use case, I'm, um, I mean, some people are very, very excited about the few shot learning idea. I'm not. Um not least because it is so uninterpretable. Right? You can't you can't go back in and say, "Gosh, it seems to be doing pretty poorly um, in our Bangalore office." Why is that? Right. 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 Um, yeah. 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 The, you, you, you sort of get what you get. Yeah. Um, so I think I think fine that, tuning is like out of the question, really. Yeah. So when I talk about language models for classification, I'm talking about their primary task, which is you know probability distributions of word forms and text. Yeah. So autocorrect is a kind of use of a language model for classification. What word is more likely here? The one they typed or something else? What's something else? That's classification. Um, in automatic transcription, right, you have the acoustic model that goes from the audio waveform to a word lattice. So a set of possible words it might have been. One of our favorite examples in computational linguistics is it's difficult to recognize speech um, which could be it's difficult to recognize speech or it is difficult to wreck a nice beach. <laughs> um, those two things are acoustically very, very similar. Um, what's the more likely one? I mean, that particular example is going to stump a bunch of large language models because it's probably all over the place in slide decks for computational linguistics. But um, that's a classification use of a language model. Which one of those is a more probable string according to the training corpus? What do you think about um, the idea of like a a PBS style LLM or something like Wikipedia, where maybe there could be a public large language model that that everyone has the opportunity to weigh in on, um, and certain people are given like priority? Uh, we've had lots of conversations about Wikipedia because it's I think it's actually proven to be some of the more reliable training data for these models, uh, certainly over Reddit. Uh, but like, is there a potential for more of like a shared utility version of an LLM. And then I guess the other question is like, what are the responsible use cases that you see for, for large language models? <laughs> right. So yeah, those are sort of two separate paths. So one, yes, I think having, if we're going to be using LLMs for anything, then we definitely need visibility into their training data. So something where the training data is completely open, we know what it is, um, and maybe even better, there is some kind of shared governance of what goes into it, uh -huh. um, both in terms of, if you think about data rights, right? So the you have, I wrote this thing, I do or do not want it to be used in this way, kind of data rights. But also, um, hey, you know, I belong to this marginalized community. I don't like how we are depicted in this training data. I would like to have some influence on what sources of data are in there. Like what, um, so for example, um, uh, Robin, shoot, I'm not, wait, oh, Robin Spear. So for example, Robin Spear has this wonderful example from I think 2017. So back in some of this early work of looking at biases in language models, um, she built a um, sentiment analysis system where the data in question was Yelp reviews of restaurants, All right? So the task is read the text and guess the stars, which is sort of an artificial task, but it's maybe one that relates to what you're talking about before, Rob, about classifying customer interactions right, right. As, as positive or negative. Um, and what she found was when she used the word embeddings, and that's the name for these representations of words in terms of what else they co-occur with, from a large web corpus, the trained sentiment analysis system was systematically bad at uh, getting the scores for Mexican restaurants in particular. What's going on there? What's going on there is that uh, the supervised learning setup was sort of looking at um, here's a bunch of words and here's a score. Which words go with high scores? Which words go with low scores? But then generalizing beyond that relatively small set of training data by taking word embeddings out of this larger corpus and saying, well, if there's a word in my supervised training data 
that goes with a positive score. And it's like these other words out in this bigger corpus. And these other words are probably also positive score words. And similarly for negative score. So why Mexican restaurants? Well, in the U.S. and therefore in a large part of the English language media, we have terrible discourse about immigration um, from and through Mexico. And so the word Mexican itself ended up being detected as a negative sentiment word. So if somebody referred to a restaurant as a Mexican restaurant or used any other words that are associated with Mexicans in Mexico, um, then therefore that was probably a negative review. And so the system was underguessing the stars for the Mexican restaurants. Uh, yeah, back to you. Oh, that's depressing. Yeah, we got off on this. So just to wrap that up well, and bring what? it back to why I went down yeah, yeah. that tangent, um, uh, you could imagine that if we have a large language model that's being used across many, many contexts, that people with Mexican heritage, people who care about people with Mexican heritage might say, you know what, we would like to make sure that that kind of discourse, like please take any articles about the immigration discourse in the U.S., out of the training corpus so we don't get that garbage. A number of folks, including the lead scientists at Facebook, has sort of made the prediction that within like five years or after five years, LLMs will sort of expire as a thing um, based on a lot of the things you're saying, that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's imperfect in too many ways and, and that we need, you know, more precise systems um, and, and, and better controls. Um, and uh, what do you think of that? Do you think do you think they're just they're going to be like a flash in the pan, a, a five year like oh member member LLMs <laughs> or or will I, they I... have a place <laughs> in our future? There's yeah. a interesting question that we've asked uh, past guests, which is like you know we, a lot of people spend a lot of time on what will change, um, and we ask the question like what won't change. <laughs> you know, as more interesting, what will change? Yeah, uh, so, will LLMs change? I mean, I I sure hope that the LLM bubble bursts and it takes less than five years. Um, that would be that would be really nice. Um, I'm guessing that that prediction is not about technology moving on so much as about venture capital moving on. That that there's there's a bubble here and it's being driven by um, speculation and people selling startup ideas. Um, and OpenAI, you know, garnering interest from people with too much money and too much of their identity um, invested in science fiction ideas of the future, let's mm -hmm. say. Yeah. Um, and um, so there's a there's a lot of money sloshing around, and that's what's driving the hype bubble. It's not actually the technology; it's the money. God, I, I yeah, this brings up something that I think you've talked about, which stopped me for a second. Um, it's really made me ponder. Still, still is. Um, it's that a lot of the folks talking about this are, are kind of in way in the future. They're talking about the it being great in the future or it killing us way in the future, and it seems like you're like, well, but what about now? Like that's that conversation is speculative. It's maybe entertainment, but there's practical implications today that we should be talking about instead of this idea that someday it's going to change mankind for the best or the worst, but it's changing mankind today. And why are we talking more about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's the, the whole AI doomer, AI booster conversation um, <laughs> where if you enter into that conversation, it sounds like they've got the full spectrum, that you're either way down the doomer end or way down the booster end and any other position has to fit in between. But from where I sit, they're all in the same like off-planet bubble that is disconnected <laughs> from reality. Um, and there's a lot of researchers and um, activists sort of, you know, looking at the here and now. Um, so I'm thinking about people like Dr. Tamit Gebru, Dr. Ruha Benjamin, um, Deb Raji, who's a PhD student at Berkeley, but really um, has done so much that I want to call her Dr. Deb Raji already, Dr. Doe Bowen-Winnie, <laughs> um, who we just hosted here at the University of Washington. <laughs> She's amazing. Um, uh, Dr. Meredith Whitaker. She doesn't have a doctorate either. Meredith Whitaker, another amazing person who's like done enough stuff that I would want to call her a doctor. Yeah, um, we'll call her a doctor. Yeah, Kathy O'Neill. Like these, these are folks who are really looking at Honor. what's happening now because of this technology, but in particular because of how it is built and how it is used. So what are people doing? What are the harms that people are doing in the process of building this technology and using it? Um, and when we get into that AI Doomer, AI Booster conversation, it's it's a big distraction, and yeah. it's unfortunately distracting policymakers. Yeah, it's a little bit like um, reminds me of like going to Mars 
Like, let's go to Mars in case the Earth is no longer habitable, you know, habitable for us. We're like, well, yeah, but what about making it habitable, more habitable and keeping it that way? <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Like, All those resources being put into Mars exploration right. could be used in a different way, for yeah. sure. Yeah, and there's, yeah. A, there's, a, there's a kind of, I guess it's fun. It's, it's, it's fun, it's emotional, it's exciting to think in those extremes and in the future you can kind of paint whatever picture you want to paint. Whereas today you have to sort of support it with data and, um, and research and that's work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and here's the other thing. If you're thinking about, oh no, it's going to, this large language model somehow is going to combust into consciousness and then turn evil and then kill us all. Right. Um, that is a danger you can become the hero against without having to confront your own privilege at all. Uh, interesting. And, Say I more think that's about part that. of why it's so, yeah. So, you know, if you think about the harms that are happening now, they are not equally distributed. We're certainly seeing the people who are already experiencing oppression getting worse stuff out of these systems, right? If it doesn't, if your voice user interface doesn't work because you don't speak a standardized variety of the language, you're going to have less access to materials. Um, if you think about the stereotypes that are reproduced, well, it tends to be positive stereotypes of the people who have the most privilege and power and negative stereotypes of everybody else, right? And on and on like this, if you think about um, the environmental racism um, aspect of this, where, you know, large language models and large also, you know, computer uh, synthetic image models and synthetic video models take enormous amounts of energy, um, are associated with lots of water use, are associated with um, mining of various rare earth materials to make chips and so on. Right. Those of us with privilege in society are not going to be the first ones experiencing the worst parts of climate change. We aren't the ones with the strip mines in our backyards. We aren't ones with the e-waste, you know, toxicity in our local environment and on and on and on like that. So if you are someone and I count myself as someone with a lot of privilege and you want to be worried about something, it is harder to worry about those things because then you have to confront your own position in it. But if it is you know, worrying about Skynet, well, we're all in that together. So right. I can be as much of a victim as anybody else. Mm. That's a really interesting perspective. Yeah, that, that GPTs or GPTs thing is is interesting because saying like them saying that it's general purpose technology is is sort of like massive hubris, and you start to wonder like, yeah. have they been seduced by the anthropomorphic nature of LLMs, or are they? trying to seduce the rest yeah. of us. <laughs> so how, how cynical is it? I don't know. Um, listening to some of these folks, it does seem like there's um, true belief in some cases, at least. Um, and, you know, people uh, people got very offended by the phrase stochastic parrots, um, and they took it as an insult or a slur against large language models, which requires seeing large language models as something that could be insulted. Anthropomorphizing <laughs> <laughs> them into yeah. having yeah. feelings. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, but it is interesting this idea that the the models trained on privileged ideas and text. Yeah, and therefore serves the privileged, um, and that we have to acknowledge that if we want to think about the short term implications, but if we go way into the future where we're all just you know victims together we all we get to join hands with the the rest of the world that you know that is less privileged and kind of kind of be in the same bucket um and yeah i guess it's the question i would i would say and i think you know i think i know the answer but can llms give more voice to those is it have the potential to 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 do that or or is it self-perpetuating is it gonna is it gonna just reinforce yeah. the privilege um so first of all I, I i always had take a pause when i hear the phrase give voice to um because typically the, the the people who are the the beneficiaries of that voice they have a voice what they need is an audience what they need is people paying yes. attention to what they're saying um, and good point. sorry, being a linguist, I'm always really picky about. No, it's of a really good point. Um, it's yeah. it's they're screaming. No one's listening. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, can like, are there ways to use this particular kind of technology to amplify um, those voices? Um, it's not clear to me that there are. Um, 
because you know, do we want do 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 not we do the people whose voices are supposedly in need of amplification want the paper mache version of their voices? Right. Um, you know, maybe there's things to be done if we're talking about using language models not necessarily to generate synthetic text, but in their other use cases to really think carefully about the data curation. Um, and to do that, as 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 Josh was bringing up earlier, in sort of a democratically governed fashion, where everybody has a vote and a voice in, okay, what goes into this data set? What do we need to keep out of it? Um, where we can say, we're doing some automation here. We would like the automation to not reproduce the discrimination of the past. Right. So we're going to be thoughtful about what we put into it. Yeah. Yes. Like the Wikipedia um, of LLMs, really. the Yes. Although Wikipedia itself is not... Um, not a paragon of being unbiased. Um, right, at least right. it it is broadly distributed. It is you know open to contribution, which is great. Um, it aims to be factual, which is great. Um, but it is also heavily skewed, male, heavily skewed to a certain age range, heavily right. skewed to um, certain locations. So um, yes, but better. <laughs> right, but better. Yes. I- I'm almost picturing like some some revitalized version of. Uh of census taking right like where the there's there's actual agents going out all over the country and ideally i guess all over the world trying to reach out to people who are underrepresented within these data sets um and then I, i'm not asking saying that them that's likely but that would be, be kind of cool right so <laughs> provide some so interesting was, jobs yeah, exactly I forget, yeah i forget which company this was but one of the big tech companies when they discovered that their uh, image processing software was doing poorly on face detection, I think, or maybe gender classification for people with darker skin, um, wanted to get more images of people with darker skin and went and did something terribly exploitative where they went and like offered homeless people a small amount of money to give up their biometric information. (laughs) You know, like just so if we are going to be doing something where it is broad collection of data, it's imperative that it also be broadly controlled and not controlled by some central group and that people have the right of refusal that they can say no thank you actually we don't want to be represented in that yeah well this was great i i had a great time i'm really glad we got to chat with you i love your perspective um it really i mean even before this conversation it got my mind racing um i think it's so easy to get excited about you know something that's seems so human when it really isn't um and it but it is sort of just like a party trick at the end of the day and um and it, it's great to just sort of ground it uh with somebody who's had so much experience <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's um I, i'm i'm honored that there's a role to play for linguists right now and that i've sort of been able to be in a position to to help play that role to like yeah. say, you know, the, the linguist understanding of how language works is really important to the broad public as we're grappling with this new technology that's being in some ways i'd say foisted upon us uh, yeah thank you emily this has been a real treat yeah yeah we'll have to do it again yeah thanks five for having years me on. when the next thing's out <laughs> yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens in that that five-year prediction right did the did the bubble burst um yeah and and what came next all right Well, thanks again for joining this ongoing conversation about conversational AI. Be sure to subscribe to Invisible Machines wherever you get your podcasts. And if you feel so inclined, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app. You can also watch these conversations on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. This podcast is produced for UX Magazine in partnership with OneReach.ai. Over the past five years, our team of nearly 200 engineers, scientists, experienced designers, Anthropologists and linguists have been developing Generative Studio X, an award-winning platform that has the lone distinction of being named a leader by every major analyst group. GSX is a complete environment for hosting, creating, analyzing, and scaling your own digital teammates called Intelligent Digital Workers. For an interactive demo of IDWs in action and to learn more about the GSX platform, head to onereach.ai. This podcast would not be possible without the hard work and dedication of executive producer Elias Parker and producer Kate Timchenko. Our video and audio editor is Michael Litvinov, and we rely on support from the marketing team at onereach.ai, including Allison Harshberger, Anastasia Nechtalio, 
and Vera Prokhodko. Thanks again, and we look forward to connecting with you next week right here on Invisible Machines.